0: <laughs> let me get situated up here okay. okay All right, we got a lot to cover today, so we're just going to jump right in. Uh, you can turn to Genesis chapter eighteen. In in Romans chapter 11, verse 22, it says, Behold the kindness and severity of God. Behold the kindness and the severity of God. Um, I think that that command guards us from uh, either, I guess, one of two errors that is Uh, being so focused on the kindness of God that we neglect the severity um, or the other way around, um, not fully and truly reflecting on his kindness because we only see the severity. Uh, The scriptures are our guideline to keep us balanced so that we would have an accurate view of God um, because Uh, I would say the greatest problem that we face as human beings is what the Bible calls idolatry. That is um, making for ourselves gods that are not the actual true God. Um, And it's only as we behold his kindness and his severity that we get a chance to see him for who he really is. Um, And uh, God is a God who has worked in and through history, Um, and so what we're going to look at today is this account of Sodom and Gomorrah. It's a famous account, and one of the challenges with famous accounts is that we can assume that we see or have already seen everything there is to see in there, Um, but Lord willing, by his grace, uh, he'll show us his kindness and his severity in this Account. It's a long passage, and I'm going to read the whole thing so that we can get a a true sense of where we are. Genesis chapter 18, and I'm going to start at verse 16. This is God's word. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down towards Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, if I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city... I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the 50 righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. Again, he spoke to him and said, For the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I'll speak again. But this once, suppose 10 are found there. He answered, For the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly so that they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city... I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men for they've come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out, groping for the door. Then the men said to Lot, have you anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you've put in the city bringing them out of the place? For we are about to destroy this place because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law who were to marry his daughters up, get out of this place for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, oh no, my lords. Behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to it, and it's a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one And my life will be saved? He said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar. Then the sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord reigned on Sodom and Gomorrah, sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities. He overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord and he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley and looked and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. It is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Father, we pray that as we hear your word this morning, that you would open our eyes to behold your kindness and your severity. And I pray, Father, that through a view of who you are by faith as you work amongst your people, that we would be changed, that we would be transformed, and that you would bring about, that you would grant repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And as always, Father, we pray that the Spirit of God would use The word of God to reveal the son of God. In Jesus name we pray. Amen. Amen. I have 10 observations to make about the kindness and severity of God in Sodom. Not going to spend a lot of time on each point um, because there's 10 of them, (laughs) Uh, but I do want us to get a sense of who God is in his kindness and in his severity in this passage. Ten observations. Observation number one, and we see it in verse 17 of chapter 18. God reveals his purposes to his people. God reveals his purposes to his people. In verse 17, it says, The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham What I am about to do. God knew Abraham in a way that he did not know everybody else. When you look in verse 19, it says, for I have chosen him in the ESV. The word literally there is for I have known him. God's knowing Abraham in a way that he did not know the inhabitants of Sodom. It's what opened up the door for God to reveal himself to his people. Sodom had no idea what was about to hit him. They had no clue. No idea. Sodom would have benefited from knowing what God revealed to Abraham. But yet, God didn't reveal it to Sodom. He revealed it to Abraham. Think about us and how that's so true for us. There's things that are in this book right here that the many people, many thousands of people each day who perish without ever hearing a word of this in their own language, they could benefit from this. They could use this. The scriptures are enough to save our souls. To make us wise for salvation. Yet. God has revealed himself. To those who believe. What a privilege we have. Psalm 25 verse 14 says. The, the friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. And he, make known, no, he makes known to them his covenant. The NIV says the Lord confides. In those Who fear him. What a privilege it is to have the God of the universe whisper in your ear what he's about to do. Think about what we know as believers. We know the origin of the world, we know where it came from, we know who created the world, we know what's wrong in the world, we know how the world's gonna end up, we know what God's purpose is throughout all of history in the world. And we know what eternity is going to look like. That's amazing. We would not know this if it wasn't revealed to us from our Father who was in heaven. Let this give us a great esteem for the scriptures and adoration for the God who reveals him, his purposes to his people. Observation number two God is aware of all sin. God is aware of all sin. We see this in chapter 18, verse 20. Then the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave. God sees everything, y'all. The inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah might have fooled themselves into thinking that they were getting away with their evil, Because nothing had happened to them up to this point. They thought they were good. They had no idea that there was a God who was in heaven who was keeping track of every single sin that they ever committed. God sees everything. He knows what goes on behind closed doors. He knows what goes on in the dorm rooms late at night. He knows what goes on in back offices, in corporate America. He knows what goes on in the heart. (laughs) Where nobody else can see, God sees the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. He sees our motives. He doesn't only see the outward act, but he sees the inward motivation behind the outward act. He sees everything. Proverbs chapter 15, verse 3. Says, the eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 24 says, Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him? declares the Lord. Do I not fill heaven and earth? declares the Lord. He sees everything. We can't get over on God. We shouldn't assume that because we do something and we don't get caught that it means that we're good to go. God sees everything. He's aware of all sin. Observation number three. God interacts with his people. God interacts with his people. I love this account in uh, 1823 to 33. Uh, We could really spend a lot of time just talking about prayer, (laughs) a theology of prayer and what we can learn uh, from Abraham. Uh, But but one of the things that we see is that that God is not merely, um, he's not a distant God merely, um, but that he's active in the lives of his people. And those whom he has chosen and brought near to him have the privilege of actually communicating with him, communing with him, fellowshipping with him. Enjoying the friendship of God. In verse 23, it says that Abraham drew near. He drew near to God. We should never take that for granted. We talk about it all the time. How, like, God is not, we shouldn't assume that we can just run up on a holy God any kind of way we want to. God is holy. Sin can't even stand in his presence. That's what the whole tabernacle was all about. These different rooms, the holy place, the most holy place. God is holy. So to be able to draw near to him and not be struck down immediately because of our sin, a great privilege. A great privilege. Abraham drew near to God and notice that in his drawing near Abraham had a posture and his posture was a posture of humility and that makes sense because humility is having an accurate perception of yourself in light of who God is and so if you're actually seeing God for who he is the natural response should be a response of humility So Abraham didn't go up into God's presence demanding stuff, declaring and decreeing that this is going to be, I declare this. No, Abraham had a posture of humility. Verse 27, he says, behold, I've undertaken to speak to the Lord who am but dust and ashes. That's not false humility on Abraham's part. He has an accurate assessment of who he is. He's a worm in the dust before this great and mighty God. He has a posture of humility. But he also was bold, though. (laughs) There was also a boldness. And, And the boldness was not based on anything in Abraham, but the boldness was based on what he knew about God's character. Notice that he says... In verse 25, at the end of verse 25, well, in the beginning, he says, far be it from, for you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? His boldness before God is based on the character of God. And so you see that mixture of boldness, but yet humility. In the New Covenant, we have the same grace, perhaps even a better grace than what Abraham had because we have the purposes of God revealed in Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 4 through 16, it says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Amazing privilege that we have as Christians, as those who have placed our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ to be able to draw near. You hear that language. We can draw near to the presence of God through prayer. And we can we have access so that we can we can be confident before God based on who God is. But yet we take a posture of humility before this great God as we seek his face. God interacts with his people. Observation number 4. God gives people over to their sin. God gives people over to their sin. We see this in chapter 19. Verse 4 and 5 Before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. They called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. These cats are wilding. Out. <laughs> they are wilding. Look, look at what they're doing. They are violently seeking to rape these men. Hideous. Ridiculous. This is a people who have been given over to God by their sin. Turn with me to Romans chapter 1, because I think that Romans 1 is a great commentary on Sodom and Gomorrah. Check out Romans 1 in light of what's happening in this narrative. Romans 1, starting at verse 18, it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who who practice them. That's a commentary on our narrative, a New Testament commentary on our narrative. And I, th- I think the fact that... I think God intends to heighten our sense of the wickedness and the evil that's going on. Like, th- th- this is... a. Uh, this is a scenario where it doesn't get much worse than this right like even the world should be able to look at this account and say okay this is this is messed up in fact some a lot of unbelievers will use a passage like this to try to discredit the bible they'll say look at what look at passages like, Gen- like genesis 19 where lot is selling his daughters in the pro offering his daughters as prostitutes like and basically say that because it's in the Bible that God is condoning it. But that's wrong. We have to make a distinction between that which is descriptive and that which is prescriptive. In other words, that which is descriptive is just describing the events as they happen. That which is prescriptive or prescribed is that which God says, this is commanded and this, do it. Okay. So just because it's described, described, Doesn't mean that it's being prescribed, okay? But this description should, like, it should alarm us. It should make us say, man, look, look at the evil. This is crazy. God gives people over to their sin. I can't think of anything worse on this earth than to be given over to your sin. Because what... What it means is that what God says is, you want to rebel against me? You want to turn against me? You want to feed your own lusts? When God gives you over, he says, go right ahead. I'm going to give you enough rope to hang yourself. I'm going to withdraw the restraints, the natural restraints that I already had there. This is a call to not continue in sin. Do not continue in sin. It's presumptuous. It's called a reprobate mind. A mind that is so consumed with its own lusts that right becomes wrong and wrong becomes right. Don't even know the difference between right and wrong. And in our text, the hearts of this people were so hard that they couldn't even see it. They couldn't even see how hard their hearts were. Lot tells them, back to our text, Lot tells them in verse 7, he says, he says, do not act so wickedly. So he calls out, look, like what you're doing, like you're wrong, you're wilding. And look at the response of the hard-hearted person who's been given over to their sin. You see it in verse 9. They pull out the judge card, the don't judge me card. This fellow came to sojourn and he has become the judge. That's what the hard-hearted always say when you point out that they're in sin. They say, don't judge me. Only God can judge me. Right? But here's the problem. It was God's mercy that Lot, a believer, was judging them by pointing out their wickedness. Because little did they know they were about to receive the judgment from God. It's the mercy of God that warns us when we're in sin. It's merciful to be corrected about our evil ways. Don't be like the hard-hearted cats in Sodom and pull out the judge card, don't judge me card, when someone identifies How your life is not lining up with what God says it should be. Another aspect of this hardness is the blinding effects that sin has. These men were justifying themselves. The assumption is that if you would have been able to interview someone in Sodom, they would have thought they were good. They justified themselves in their actions. They were blind. They were blind to the effects of sin. We're able to, to look at it, remove from the situation and say, yo, you're wildin'. But they're so caught up in it, so caught up in the grips and bondage of their sin that they're blind. They don't see how detestable it is. They don't see how horrific it is. They don't see how disgusting it is. They don't see how abominable it is. They're blind. And so when the angel blinds them, what you see happening is that the blindness that was already in their hearts is just being worked out physically. They were already blind. That's what sin does. The devil has blinded the hearts, blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they can't even see anything glorious about the gospel. If you're not in Christ today, you're blind to this. This doesn't even make sense. Don't be hard-hearted. Listen, don't be like the cats in Sodom. Let's receive some instruction from this. I find it interesting that it says... It says that they, in verse 9, at the end of verse 9, it says that they pressed hard against the man Lot and they drew near to break the door down. Hear that phrase? Drew near. Same phrase from the chapter before. Abraham drew near to the presence of the Lord. The hard-hearted drew near for wickedness coming together with cats who were wilding out in wickedness. They drew near to their community in order to engage in wickedness. We want to be the first kind, not the second kind of people who draw near. Now, when we look at texts like this, because it's so horrific, one, 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 of our, one of our sinful tendencies is to say, man, look at them. They are horrible. I would never be like this. Right? That's, that's, that's our, our, our sinful, self-righteous tendency. But notice what it says in Ezekiel 16, which is another Old Testament commentary on this passage. Ezekiel 16, the Lord is rebuking his people, Israel, who had that same self-righteous tendency. And listen to what he says. He says, as I live, declares the Lord God. Your sister Sodom and her daughters have not done as you and your daughters have done. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me, so I removed them when I saw it. We should not assume that, well, yeah, these these are violent, homosexual rapists. They're getting what they deserve. If you walk in pride, if you walk in prosperous ease without being generous, covetousness, materialism, haughtiness, looking down on others, you're committing the sin of Sodom. That's the sin of Sodom pride, God gives people over to their sin. Observation number five, God saves his people by grace alone. God saves his people by grace alone. You have, <laughs> when you look at Lot, and, and, and I, I heard the I heard the moans and the groans when we, when we read the account of Lot and, and saw how he behaved in this chapter. It doesn't paint a very flattering picture of Lot, right? Again, people would use this to try to discredit the Bible. For me, it actually proves the validity of the Bible because it doesn't attempt to cover up the flaws of its heroes. But it shows human nature as it really is. And I believe Lot was actually genuinely saved. We'll, we see that in the New Testament. We'll talk about that in a second. But we just see the, we see the inconsistency in his life. Don't get it twisted. What Lot did with his daughters, verse 8 of 19, Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Horrible, sinful. I can't think of anything too much worse than a, that, that, that a father could do to his daughter. He's, prostitute, he's offering his daughters to prostitute them, his virgin daughters. His call as a father is to protect his daughters. His call as a father is to lead his daughters. I can't even imagine if, if the daughters heard this after all was said and done and they were safe. Like, dad. Dad. <laughs> Like, what's good? <laughs> Horrible. But you see what he does? It's, it's in a moment of panic, right? A lot of us, we, we always say what we, what we would do until we actually get in the situation, and then we do something that, after the fact, we're like, dang, I can't believe I even, Right? Horrible how he treats his daughters. Consider this also about Lot. Lot knows about the judgment of God. Now, Lot has had this revelation from the angels. They've told him what's about to happen. He witnessed the miracle of, uh, of the men being blinded. Like, he's, he's had a lot of grace to be able to see that what's happening is from God, right? And yet, what does he do in verse 16? It says he lingered. He knew the destruction was coming. He knew that the city was about to be destroyed. Not only did he know it, but he was evangelizing. He was telling Cat, he went to his family and said, yo, this place is about to be destroyed. He had all the facts correct. But yet he lingered. He stayed around. His heart. His heart was still attached to the things that were in Sodom. It doesn't paint a very flattering portrait of Lot. But yet, when you look at a text like Second Peter chapter 2, seven and eight, it says that God rescued righteous lot. <laughs> But then it says that Lot was greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over the lawless deeds that he saw and heard. How do you reconcile these two? The New Testament, like, Lot is saved. In this text, he's referred to as being righteous. Three times. It's because God saves sinners by grace and not by works. He saves sinners by grace apart from works of the law. He did not look at Lot and see how dope Lot was and was just like, you know what? You're a good guy, Lot. I think I'm going to save you. No. That's not how it worked. God chose Lot by grace. If you are in Christ, he's chosen you by grace apart from anything that you could do, apart from any merit, apart from anything that you could earn. God saves his people by grace. I love how it says, after after it says he lingered, in verse 16 it says, the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. The Lord being merciful to him. How many people know that to be warned to escape for your life from a house that's burning is merciful? To be dragged out of the city is merciful. I'm sure it might have hurt their wrists because they were grabbed so hard. They might have fell and cut their knees on their way out of the city. It might have been painful to be seized. That's a very strong word there, to be seized and grabbed and yanked. It was God's mercy to yank them and to seize them and to wake them up. Anybody lingering today? Are you lingering in the Sodom of this world? with your heart attached to things that are perishing. God says, escape for your life. Don't get mad that the word of God is trying to seize you and yank you and be firm with you. Escape. Get out. Because the time is coming when you're not going to be able to. Time is coming when you're not going to be able to. I like this quote from R. Kent Hughes. It says, there's every evidence that righteous Lot was of no benefit whatsoever to the inhabitants of Sodom. It's because they all perished. (laughs) Right? Lot did not benefit Sodom at all. If he had, there there might have been ten more righteous people. God didn't, Lot being there, his presence in Sodom did nothing for Sodom. They still perished. It says, though he lived in Sodom for years and was prominent in its gates and therefore would have had many opportunities to influence his friends, Lot utterly disappointed. When judgment fell on Sodom, not one righteous person could be found outside his family. Additionally, Lot's lifestyle had done nothing to loosen the culture's grip on his wife. She left her heart in Sodom and therefore couldn't resist turning around to her destruction. Sad. Sad. To be a believer amongst a group of people who are perishing and that perishing group of people receive no benefit at all. No saving benefit at all. Let us share. Let us share what we have. Observation number six. God's judgment is unexpected. God's judgment is unexpected. We see this in 19 verse 23. It says the sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. The idea there is that the sun rose and it was a normal day, like any other day that the sun rises. So that morning, the birds were chirping. You could smell the dew on the ground, if there was any dew to smell, perhaps. <laughs> the desert sands, you could smell the heat rising up. I don't know. It was a normal day. There there, there was nothing, like like there was nothing about the day itself that would have told you what was about to happen. And when it did come, it was unexpected. Like this text from Ecclesiastes 8.11, it says, because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Again, you think that, The tendency is to think that because you don't get caught and don't get punished immediately that the punishment is never coming. But little did they know that God had a contract out on Sodom. And it was about to go down. It was unexpected. The Lord Jesus in Luke 17 referring to this passage. He says likewise just as it was in the days of Lot. They were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. This judgment at Sodom is pointing forward to the final judgment when Jesus Christ comes back. And it's unexpected. The destruction that he's going to bring with him is unexpected. That shouldn't be the case for those of us who have this. It shouldn't be unexpected for us. Observation number seven God's judgment is terrifying. God's judgment is terrifying. Verse 24 The Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, sulfur and fire. From the Lord out of heaven. Can you imagine? Raining fire? I can't even imagine. We got caught out in the rain the other day. I cannot imagine if every single one of those drops was fire and sulfur until I was completely destroyed. It's terrifying, terrifying, but yet it says that it was from the Lord, out of heaven. It wasn't the devil. It was from the Lord. It was the wrath of God on display. Listen to this text from Nahum chapter 1, starting in verse 2. Listen to this. And ask yourself, is this the God that you worship on a regular basis? The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in in the whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. And the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good. A stronghold in the day of trouble, he knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overwhelming flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. Behold, the severity of God. This is our God. His judgment is terrifying. Observation number eight. God's judgment is universal. His judgment is universal. We see it in verse 25 and 26. It says he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. Universal judgment. Men, women, young, old plant life, human life, everything. God did not spare anybody. It didn't matter if you were cute, if you were a cute sodomite, if you were a a quiet sodomite. It didn't matter. If you were rich, poor, like God he took vengeance on everybody. It was un- There's no place in Sodom. It doesn't matter where they ran to. If they, if they went to try to hide in a basement somewhere, the fire found them. Universal. The, if they started begging and pleading, like, please stop. Didn't stop it. There, w- there was no Mercy. It was unmixed. It was judgment unmixed with mercy here. His judgment is universal. And that's what's going to be. That's what's going to be at the final judgment. Revelation 20, verse 15 says, If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Doesn't no matter who you are. If your name's not in the book. That's it. You go into judgment. Revelation 21 verse 8 says, But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. It was universal. It included people who had not heard the word of God, and it included people like Lot's wife. Lot's wife is so tragic because she heard, she was around the people of God. She had privileges that the other cats in Sodom did not have. But again, her heart was attached to Sodom, and she was destroyed. She made it all the way to the end, but she didn't finish well. He who endures to the end shall be saved. She turned and was destroyed. Revelation 18 verse 4 and 5 says, I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues, for her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. It's a call to come out of the world, separate, be holy. God has called us to be holy. Don't indulge in the sins of the world and then perish right along with the world. God's judgment is universal. Need to get ready to close. Observation number nine says that God's judgment is final. God's judgment is final. This smoke went up like the smoke of a furnace. It's irreversible. Nobody's ever lived, you know, nobody's ever lived in that land ever since. This judgment. It's been covered over. Nobody's ever lived there again. It's irreversible. Again, once the judgment started, there was nothing anybody could do to stop it. Jude verse 7. It says, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, it says they serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. This judgment is a type. It's a shadow. It's a pointer. It points ahead to the judgment to come, which is eternal and final. Revelation 14, 10 and 11, speaking of unbelievers, it says that they will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. Hell is eternal. What that means is I can't even even fathom. I can't fathom eternity. I can't fathom infinity. I can't fathom what it means that once you've been there for a thousand, ten thousand, a million years, you're no closer to being at the end of it than you were when you first got there. I, I, I I don't even understand that. I just know I don't want to go there, and I know, and I don't want you to go there. Observation number ten, and this is where I'll close on. God's kindness and severity is seen most clearly in Jesus Christ. God's kindness and severity is seen most clearly in Jesus Christ. Look at verse twenty-nine. I never noticed this before. It says that so it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities. It doesn't say that God remembered Lot. It says that God remembered Abraham and he rescued Lot. God looked at the promise that he made to Abraham and Lot was the beneficiary of the promise. In the same way, for those who are in Jesus Christ, God remembers Jesus. God remembers Jesus and his life, his death, and his resurrection on our behalf, and he sets us free. We are freed from our sin, from the penalty of our sin, not because of us, but because of another. And that other is Jesus Christ. I don't have time to go into chapter 18, 18 and following and the promises that God made to Abraham, which are ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ. How is it that Abraham is going to be the father of many nations? He's one man. How can one man be the father of many nations? We learn this in Galatians. That the promise was not made to Abraham but to his seed and the seed was Jesus Christ himself and that those who trust in Jesus Christ are sons of Abraham by faith so what that means brothers and sisters those who have trusted in Jesus Christ it means that we avoid the wrath of God because Jesus has taken our wrath Jesus has taken our punishment God's wrath was universal on Jesus Christ on the cross. It affected him body and soul. God's wrath was irreversible in Jesus on the cross. Jesus Christ suffered in his body something that that we can never ever fathom. And he did it not for himself, but he did it for all who trust in him, for all who believe in him. I like how it says in 1 Peter 3, 18, it says, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. When you look back at Abraham's interceding for the people, that's a type of Christ interceding for us. But think about this, and this blows my mind. Imagine if there were 10 righteous people in Sodom, and God would have saved the city. That would have been amazing. That would have been an amazing act of mercy. God saves a city of thousands, tens of thousands for the sake of ten righteous people, right? But in Jesus Christ, God saves a multitude that no man can count for the sake of one righteous man. For the sake of one righteous man. A people from every tribe, tongue, language is saved. That's all I got. Let's pray. Father, I pray for anyone here who does not know you. And I pray, God, that they would not respond the way that those who perished in Sodom responded, that they would not think that this is a joke, that they would not think that this is funny or cute, but that they would take heed of your word and escape for their lives and trust in the Savior. I pray for eyes to see and ears to hear. Father, I also pray, and I praise you, For Jesus, we praise you, Lord. Thank you for saving us by grace apart from works. And thank you for sparing us as sinful as we are for the sake of the one righteous man, Jesus Christ. And Father, I pray for any believer here who is still fascinated with the things of this world, that you would give grace to turn away, that you would give grace to pursue Christ as our Lord, our savior and our treasure. And I pray these things in Jesus name, amen.